Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello there. This is Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. We have talked to many people about nutrition and various uh, medical conditions and how we can be proactive in our health. But we have not delved into the area of mental health, which is very complicated and probably is interconnected with all the other ailments one can think about. So today we have the honor of having Dr. James Greenblatt, an integrative psychiatrist here, who's going to ha- uh, we're going to discuss these matters. Dr. James Greenblatt is the Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Medical Services at Walden Eating Disorders Program in Massachusetts and Connecticut. He is board certified in child and adult psychiatry. He received his medical degree and completed his adult psychiatry residency at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., in the medical school. And he completed a fellowship in adolescent psychiatry at John Hopkins Medical School. In addition, he is a clinical faculty member in the psychiatry department at Tufts Medical School, as well as the Giselle School of Medicine at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. He lectures extensively. He is the author of six books, including uh, Answer to Anorexia, The Breakthrough Depression Solution, Answers to Binge Eating, Integrative Therapies for Depression, Redefining Models for Assessment and Treatment Preventions, Nutritional Lithium, The Cinderella Story, and his most recent book, Finally Focused, which looks at the enigma called Attention Deficit Disorder. Um, This book is available this spring, and so welcome, Dr. Greenblatt. Thank you very much. It's good to be part of your show. Oh, it's our honor. Okay, so let's get started. What got you interested in this? Uh, what is an integrative psychiatrist? An integrative psychiatrist is a um, typically a, a traditionally trained mental health professional, a physician who kind of has stepped out of the medical model of just thinking medications are the answers to kind of all of mental health problems. And the word integrate is a critical part, integrating nutrition, metabolic, lifestyle, and environmental factors to treat um, both major mental illnesses as well as uh, stress and anxiety that are just so commonplace in our society. What got you interested in this pathway? Well, I kind of went to medical school many years ago thinking, you know, I was going to cure the world with uh, brown rice and kale, and... um, (laughs) You know, I realized it was a little more complicated and, um, you know, became a traditionally trained psychiatrist and realized that model was limited and kind of went back to my interest in, in nutrition and brain health. And it's been um, kind of a part of my career for over 30 years now. Wow. So nutrition plays a big part in most mental disorder, like in depression and attention deficit disorder? I think it's a, a critical component that's just tragically missed. It is not, you know, the answer to everyone with a depression or ADHD, but there's, um, for many, there's some very simple te- 
testing or simple interventions that can really turn around the course of these illnesses, and it's just um, not looked at enough. What about schizophrenia? Because I kind of look at that as, well, it's a whole bunch of different diseases, but uh, that seems very difficult to help people with. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because that is my next project, and that is something I'm just passionate about because our treatment of schizophrenia has gone to a very, very heavily medicated model as the only solution with um, disease from these medications, diabetes, obesity, and really um, significant uh, impairment in life. And uh, I'm comparing the United States from Europe, which is much less medications, and there are many kind of nutritional, and we use the term orthomolecular, which is high dose of certain nutrients that can actually um, help treat schizophrenia. So that is the project I'm working on uh, currently. Well, I used to work for the NHS, and uh, our approach was somewhat similar to the approach in the United States. at least the part of it that I was in, it was very heavily medication-focused. So there is something else we can do for these folks, or do we have to keep them on the medications while we look at these other things and then gradually lower the medications? Uh, that, that is actually my ideal. I mean, I'm, I'm frustrated with the kind of anti-psychiatry movement. You never need to use medicines. And I'm frustrated with traditional psychiatrists where that's you, you telling patients you have to be on medicines for life. Someone comes in uh, with uh, uh, psychotic episodes, um, we can decrease that and eliminate those quickly, often with medications. But as we delve deeper into the problem, we've seen everything from B12 deficiency to infections to other new vitamin deficiencies to GI problems that play a role in that process that we're calling schizophrenia. So if we treat all these um, underlying illnesses. Actually, vitamin D deficiency is very common in psychosis and very simple to treat. So if we treat all those underlying pieces while someone's on medicine, as you said, we can get them off quickly and they can be much more functional. Well, maybe at a minimum we can lower the medications because these do have such serious side effects. I mean, gluten and diet, gut, I think, will be a huge part, too. Also, I understand schizophrenia is probably a whole bunch of different diseases. It could be leukodystrophies, just about anything. So it really takes a lot more thought and time than I think that we have time to give. Correct, yes. We just need a, a different approach, and, you know, we need an integrative, comprehensive approach. I am certainly looking forward to that next book. In the meantime, let's get back to attention deficit because this is increasing so much in our society. I mean, it's it just uh, it's it's increasing so much. Maybe this is environmental toxins. Maybe things like EMF. Maybe diet. I mean, who knows? But it just seems to be rampant. So, um, do you, what do you find uh, nutritional deficiencies in ADHD? Well, first of all, I wanted to tell people what ADHD is and what the standard of treatment is uh, at this time. Um, ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It's the most common childhood um, psychiatric disorder, the most common reason someone sees their pediatrician for behavior problems. So it, it's, it's very common and it's increasing. It's um, much higher uh, rates in the United States than in, in many European countries. And the disorder untreated 
um, really can be disabling through uh, school age as well as adulthood. So I, I think the disorder is real, but what's happening is certainly our culture looking for that quick fix solution. We have medications, we have amphetamines that can help treat this, this disorder. So kids function better on these medications and, and parents kind of seek that relief, but oftentimes they are missing nutritional metabolic problems and oftentimes there are side effects to the medications or the kids can't stop taking the medications and function. Yes, I've had patients, I mean, parents beg me to put their kids on those medications and that's just the way the world was. I guess, uh, you know, parents are concerned about the behavior. So um, are there environmental factors involved? Are there nutritional factors involved? I think all the above, um, what you had mentioned, I think it's clear. Um, the research on uh, pesticides is, is quite um, clear now. Um, so pesticides, uh, insecticides, environmental toxins like lead and mercury. Um, people in this country got a lot of um, exposure to high lead with a, a water crisis in, in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, and so people started looking back at research that's been done for 30 years and rates of ADHD of those that had lead um, uh, poisoning are 40, 50%, very, very high numbers. So many environmental toxins and the nutritional deficiencies, magnesium, zinc, and iron, all associated with ADHD. Well, also I've read studies that if you expose a fetus to electromagnetic fields or cell phones, the kids, uh, when the, the offspring of rats uh, grow up with you know, brain disorders, uh, decreased hippocampus, cerebellum disorders, but also studies have showed increased, increased anxiety and difficult behavior and some in t- increased tendency for ADHD. Now, I don't know how they're going to do that study because it's very difficult to find a control I mean, on humans because I understand cordless phones are worse than the cell phones, but at least in animal studies, uh, this has been shown to be the case. So it's just probably a whole combination of environmental factors that are making this disease so prominent. Yeah, well, certainly the um, the use of uh, just routine uh, screens, TV screens, the iPads for these um, infants um, are, are, are a factor. And, um, and the other factor that we're... Um, the research is quite clear about, um, not as um, communicated as much to clinicians, is um, sleep deprivation. So sleep problems in infancy and in childhood, predicted ADHD, and sleep problems um, throughout uh, adolescence have a, f- a very profound factor on the symptoms of ADHD. Well, could some, uh, I mean, ADHD sounds like a big catch-all term. Could some kid just be anxious or a little bit nervous or uh, difficulty focusing? Are a lot of people who don't have ADHD that are put under that rubric? Yeah, I think that there are some circles where ADHD has this kind of negative connotation as an illness. And there are other kind of uh, communities where ADHD is seen as, as a strength, the symptoms of high energy and passion and uh, excitement and being able to juggle um, or multi- multitask. And these are some of our most successful individuals from uh, CEOs of corporations to inventors, um, 
you know, people make jokes of Einstein and Edison and, you know, some of uh, other individuals. So ADHD symptoms are not necessarily good or bad. It's really the environment um, that those symptoms uh, become um, evident in. Well, since I've received that label, I really like that spin to it. So, okay, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay, so, um, so okay, if you're a parent of a child that seems to have these conditions and your uh, physician says, okay, here's your Ritalin, uh, what else can the pa- parents do? I mean, do they find an integrative psychiatrist or can they inve- start investigating this on their own? I think the way we wrote this particular book, the finally focus was to help parents be able to pursue the information on their own and to obviously work with their doctors. But um, something simple like magnesium, which is, I believe, one of the most common nutritional deficiencies in ADHD, it can minimize the side effects to, to Ritalin. Often kids get um, anxious on the medications, irritable, and, and those symptoms will go away with magnesium if someone um, is taking the stimulants like Ritalin. Often, uh, Ritalin, it's a short-acting medicine, so people can stop and start it. Summer vacations, they might not be on it. So looking at a nutritional approach over time can really help uh, families, help sometimes their children um, be able to stop the medications. I read your book and I found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, I mean, you go through a series of sequential steps to look at various supplements and vitamins and steps, and I found it very interesting. So when looking at supplements, uh, what other things should the parents look at or get tested for or ask their physicians to test for? Well, I think it's um, you know really important that the routine screening test in their pediatrician's office, things like iron deficiency and lead uh, could be done by every pediatrician. And then the outline in the book looks at testing that one would need more of an integrative um, practitioner, a nutritionist, or naturopath, or, or a physician, looking at some of the other things we talk about, like food allergies, um, urine tests, looking at the gut, looking at heavy metals. Those tests are not routinely done by most pediatricians. Okay. Um, Also, in your book, it said that dark chocolate might help because it regulates epinephrine and norepinephrine and decreases glutamate. So, I mean, might dark chocolate help some? Probably, yeah. I'm a big fan of of a class of what we call phytochemicals called OPCs. And these are kind of what's... um, a, a, a molecule in, in plants, and it's kind of the colors. So it's the, the, the blueberries and the green tea, red wine, and uh, the dark chocolate. And we have shown, we actually did some research that they can uh, help attention, um, help cognitive function, and uh, so, yes, dark chocolate can be helpful. Also, what the dark chocolate can do, it can slow the production and release of histamine, protect against lipid peroxidation, which is hugely important, um, strengthen the blood-brain barrier so all sorts of unpleasant things don't get into the brain, and it increases the enzymes that decrease inflammation. As, as we've heard from many speakers, inflammation seems to be at the root of just about any disease we can come up with. So, uh, so I think that group, the OPCs, is very important. Now, what about pine bark? Well, pine bark is one of the original kind of OPCs, and so that's something that 
is easy for me to talk about with my colleagues because um, there's there's research. So there's research studies from around the world looking at um, pine bark extracts, um, uh, pycnogenol, and, and these are concentrated sources of OPC, and these have helped. They've helped attention. Um, ADHD, and other kind of cognitive symptoms. So it's always nice when we have research to support the um, recommendations we're making. Yeah, as your book said, it increases alertness, focus, decreases impulsivity, restlessness, aggressiveness, and uh, it decreases oxidation uh, and helps clear thinking. Very important. You also mentioned green tea. Yes, green tea. Also, um, lots of research looking at kind of cognitive decline in the elderly. Um, again, some of the active uh, phytochemicals in green tea are these OPCs, and it's important that um, for ADHD, um, certainly for many adults, sometimes OPCs have been the only treatment um, that we've used um, with lots of success. Now, also interesting in your book, now, audience, don't, I'm going to mention lithium, but it's not the traditional lithium carbonate that the psychiatrist gives out. You were mentioning very low dose of lithium, which is actually a mineral on the periodic chart. Uh, so you were mentioning low dose is really helpful for ADHD and maybe other health conditions? Yeah, I've been um, looking and, and using um what we call nutritional lithium or low-dose lithium for, for almost 30 years now. And I think it has uh, tremendous implications for many, many psychiatric illnesses. Uh, lithium is a uh, essential nutrient that's in our soil, and we get it from our, you know, water is a, a source. And, and depending on what community you live in is how much lithium might be in the water supply. And the original research showed that Areas where there's low lithium in the water, there was much higher incidence of depression, suicide, even violence and aggression. And areas where there are high lithium, much less. So as we started exploring uh, this kind of nutritional lithium, um, there's growing interest in its ability to help prevent Alzheimer's and, and cognitive decline. And our work, we use it with kind of uh, aggression and in young children. So the kind of ADHD where these kids are very uh, aggressive, maybe hitting, oftentimes either young kids that get kicked out of school or preschool, and uh, looking at uh, using low-dose lithium micrograms, um, very tiny dosages, um, can be really dramatic. Wow, that's very interesting. It also protects the brain cells, I understand. But that's very important. The audience, now we're not talking about the doses like 600, 900, 1500 that your psychiatrist might give you. He's talking very small doses that are protective for the brain and with minimal side effects. But we have to be a little careful with renal f- difficulties. Um, no, we, we uh, never get either blood levels. Um, so there's no detectable blood levels from these dosages. So we look, we screen for thyroid and kidney, but we do not do a, um, ongoing lab monitoring because they're just not um, ever a problem. Okay. You're also talking about like the effects of zinc and the zinc and copper ratio. They tend to be inverse. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, zinc also is nice to talk about with my uh, colleagues because over the years there's been a growing body of research demonstrating zinc as a mineral, um, low levels of zinc uh, and ADHD. And the research is, is so 
kind of uh, large body now, it, it has a couple different roles. One, we found low zinc in many kids with ADHD, and two, we're able to demonstrate that zinc um, can treat the symptoms of ADHD, and then there's research looking at zinc with the stimulant medications for ADHD, and, and many countries routinely use zinc with medications um, for ADHD. Yeah so, zinc, uh, of, uh, yeah, so zinc helps increase the effectiveness of ADHD medications, you're saying? Yes. Yeah, there's studies looking at that. The important uh, flip side of that is not only is low zinc the problem, but there's a seesaw with a mineral called copper. And so when zinc gets low, copper gets high. And uh, probably the more common problem that is not as much in the research, but we have found it to be very significant, is elevated copper levels. Yes, I believe Dr. Walsh will be on the program within a few weeks uh, looking at copper very seriously as well. But doesn't melatonin, which regulates our sleep and, you know, kind of uh, counterpart to cortisol, doesn't that rely on zinc as well? Yes, you need uh, zinc to convert uh, serotonin to melatonin. So, zinc deficiency we see across many psychiatric illnesses like depression and anorexia nervosa, uh, sleep difficulties are uh, very much part of that. It also stabilizes the neurons and helps the coding of the neurons. So that's a pretty important piece of this puzzle as well, as and a seesaw factor of too much copper is a problem as well. So this is, you know, all these things that just like, I, I suppose each kid is different, and you have to look at all these components. And uh, we're going to get to the gut fairly quick, shortly. But it's in your book, you kind of have a formula for helping the parents go through this step by step so they can start either asking the questions or, you know, pursuing these different pathways. You have this in a very organized manner. Well, as, you know, we go through, I wish it was simple, you know, like the one pill um, mentality, but uh, every child is different. And to simplify it, we came up with what we call the plus minus plan where we kind of help parents think, are there things that we need to add into either someone's diet or lifestyle, or there are things that we need to take away, um, you know, toxic minerals um, and uh, things like that. So that's why we call it the plus-minus plan. And we outline the book as to the simplest and most important. That's why magnesium is the uh, first chapter, OPCs we talked about. And then as it progresses, um, it, these are kinds of important adjunctive treatments, but wanted to make it very simple for parents. So can parents do these on their own? Like, I mean, obviously giving blueberries and giving a little bit of zinc and stuff, uh, in most cases will be very helpful for the overall health. So could parents just start doing this on their own without, uh, you know, with, you know, just, you know, interacting with their doctor as normal? Yes, many of the things here... Um, could be done on their own, um, whether it's a lifestyle, um, a mindfulness exercises, dietary recommendations, supplements that they can get over the counter, absolutely. Okay. Now, you also talk about the role of the gut. Is the gut uh, What is the role of the gut with respect to ADHD or other um, mental illnesses as well? Well, we're finding, uh, and with very... Uh, impressive research um, at a very, very fast pace that the 
the nervous tissue in the gut and the microbiome in the gut, the bacteria in the gut, which are four or five pounds of bacteria, um, which is almost as much as the brain weighs. So there's that much of bacteria in our gut has important functions that affect our, our brain, essentially affecting our, our mood, our behavior, and uh, can uh, result in uh, severe kind of neuropsychiatric symptoms. So we look at it a few ways. We look at uh, testing for bacteria in the gut that might produce chemicals that we know affect the brain. And we also look at um, utilizing uh, healthy bacteria called probiotics and prebiotics to support the gut. And there's a, a subset of ADHD kids where that is a problem. And there's probably a larger subset of other psychiatric illnesses where the um, GI tract is very critical to healing and recovery. Yes, uh, so I I've, uh, find out that it affects a certain, uh, can attribute to autism or certainly subset of their problems. But does it, uh, how does, what is its role in depression or schizophrenia? Well, I think the, um, the, uh, it's complicated. I don't think we know all the details, but there's, there's one bacteria. There's a, a, um, a form of Clostridia, which is a bacteria that's normal in the gut, but there's certain strains that produce a chemical. And the chemical is a long name, but with the abbreviation is HPHPA. And this is detected on a simple urine test, and this chemical interferes with the production of norepinephrine in the brain and the breakdown of dopamine. And by testing this chemical, um, we're able to predict um, symptoms like schizophrenia because if we have this elevation of this chemical, we need to kind of use high-dose probiotics in the gut. And we've seen symptoms of psychosis and agitation completely disappear with high-dose probiotics. Now, again, not everyone has elevation of this HPHPA. Not everyone has a gut problem, but many do, and it's just really important that mental health professionals start looking for those individuals. Well, we're coming to a break now, so uh, uh, Dr. Greenblatt and myself will be back right after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Did you know that nearly a third of Americans have made us the number one country in obesity rates in the world? It's true. It's time for right choices. Tune in every week for the show that aims to make you healthier. You don't need a lot of time, money, or even need to travel far. Host Dietrich Wright will show you what you can do easily to be more fit, healthier, have more energy, and live a better life overall. Be sure to make us a part of your weekend every Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home, and work lives, but most importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. 
It's learning how to live life on life's terms. If you can relate to these issues or love someone who does, start with yourself. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan, and with me, I'm talking with Dr. Greenblatt, who is an expert in integrative psychiatry and treating various mental disorders uh, with multi-modalities, including nutrition, exercise, sleep, uh, stress management, uh, mindfulness, etc. So this is so those of you that know somebody dealing with a mental disorder or you have some challenges yourself, this is something you might want to seek out. Um, okay, so we were talking about that Canada can generate a chemical called HPHPA that has adverse effects on the brain, making the child more agitated and aggressive. And he was also saying that giving probiotics uh, for this particular subset of ADHD kids, you know, helps increase certain neurotransmitters such as serotonin and GABA, which and helps them calm down a little bit. So that's very interesting. Uh, what other things can you tell us about how the gut affects our mood and uh, mental well-being? Well, there are a number of our kids with ADHD had. Um, high dose, um, or not necessarily high dose, but had multiple uh, antibiotic uh, trials for ear infections. So oftentimes we get overgrowth of yeast in some of our, our kids with ADHD due to this multiple antibiotic trials. So the antibiotics kill both the good bacteria and it sets the stage for growth of, of candida and yeast. So um, oftentimes we need to address uh, the uh, yeast uh, overgrowth as well. Okay, so how would we uh, tell if a kid might have yeast or if we, if we might have yeast? Uh, sometimes, you know, there are other yeast infections, so there could be um, yeast in the mouth and in the gut or, or on the skin, but oftentimes for our kids with ADHD, we can do two tests. One, we again, that same urine test, it's called an organic acid, we pick up metabolites of yeast that only come from yeast. And so these are chemicals that we know shouldn't be in the body. If they are, there's overproduction of yeast. And then we can also look at stool samples for overproduction of yeast. The clinical symptoms of uh, yeast are often uh, sugar cravings, moodiness, uh, irritability. So kind of very common symptoms that a lot of kids would have. So they're not specific, but 
if we put some of the clinical with the testing, we're best able to make that determination. Don't yeast like sugar a lot? Yeah, the, the high cravings for um, refined sugar certainly is part of it and makes it worse. So we get in that vicious cycle. Yeah. And uh, going back to clostridia, another thing that's interesting is because it affects a certain enzyme, the dopamine levels go up. So if you give these kids Ritalin, these kids might get worse if they've got a clostridia condition. Uh, excellent point. Uh, I think that there are two important uh, points in the book related to children that have side effects to medication, which is common. Uh, so someone is put on a stimulant by the pediatrician, has high, uh, irritability, anger problems, and can't tolerate the medicine. There are usually two things that we see. Elevations of HPHPA, as you described, and elevations of copper. And for those that are interested in medicines, once we treat those two problems, some kids have both, some kids have one, then they can tolerate the medicine without side effect. But yes, this elevation of HPHPA makes it very hard to use a stimulant medication with any uh, efficacy because the side effects are very, very severe. How interesting. I mean, you said one approach to when you've got high HPHPA is to give certain probiotics. What do you do if your copper level is high? Give zinc? Exactly. Yeah, we would use high-dose zinc uh, for an extended period of time. It's, it's at least three months. And um, as the copper levels go down, then um, the other treatments work better. The OPCs we talked about earlier also kind of binds copper and helps bring copper down. So we use uh, zinc and OPCs for elevations in copper. So I understand in your book you lead the reader through a very methodical approach. You'd have them test for magnesium and lithium first, and then if this doesn't work in one or two months, you test for the HPHPA. And very logically, you lead the reader through a, kind of a decision tree to help uh, figure out what's going on. And and that's kind of that kind of self-help plus minus plan. I think there are physicians who could look at many, many of these tests in, in one visit, you know, so looking at the urine test and the blood test to be able to go through many steps uh, much more quickly. But that would take working with a physician. So does the diet depend, uh, do you have any particular recommendations for the diet or does it depend on the results of some of these tests? Well, I think the one the consistent thing that both the research and we found over the years is um, higher protein diets to help kids with ADHD. Uh, there's some research that they don't metabolize carbohydrates well and blood sugar um, spikes and, and drops in particular are common, so there's very erratic uh, blood sugar from refined foods and carbohydrates. So I'm always recommending to the parents or to adults who have ADHD that higher protein uh, throughout the day is much better for attention and for ADHD. What about gluten? Uh, gluten varies. I, I think that we have uh, kids, um, there are different ways that uh, gluten can be a problem. So we have kids where gluten is a problem. Um, it could be a wheat allergy, could be celiac disease or gluten intolerance. And then we have other children and other adults where it's, um, not as much of a problem. So I don't have a blanket, everybody should eliminate gluten, but what we see a lot 
is adults who present with ADHD for the first time, you know, they do not have ADHD as children, and they present or college students with inattention, and uh, the school psychiatrist puts them on the Ritalin. Uh, we've picked up a number of celiac disease patients, and part of the issue is they become very deficient in things like iron and zinc um, very quickly um, from the celiac disease destroying the gut, and they have problems paying attention. But that's wow. not ADHD. That's untreated celiac disease. Well, doesn't gluten have many components? So the standard uh, medical test for the anti-gliadin antibody might not pick up if you've got a sensitivity to gluten? Absolutely. I think any of our kind of chronically ill patients, we talked earlier about schizophrenia, um, depression not resolving, that I always would recommend a trial off of gluten um, for patients with major psychiatric illness. What about food allergies? Food allergies in our young children, um, I I think, is just a very neglected part of our treatment. Um, These children under six that are now put on medications without any testing or treatment, the vast majority have food allergies. They could be to common foods like dairy and wheat, um, but it could be corn, tomatoes, avocados. We've we've seen anything, Um, but for the younger kids certainly under 6, but probably under 12, I think it's a critical part of an ADHD evaluation. What are the signs or uh, what kind of things going on would make us wonder about food allergies? The, uh, there are classic um, symptoms or clinical signs that I think are easy for parents to see. And these are kids, um, you see that their face gets red or oftentimes their ears get red and uh, what's kind of both humorous um, but not uncommon, parents will notice one ear getting red. So after they eat or an hour and after they eat, they, they might have one ear gets very red. Um, so reactions um, like that, uh, black circles under the eyes are not uncommon in food allergies. And uh, the other part that we look at is cravings for certain foods. So oftentimes the food these kids are allergic to, they might have cravings. So it might be a change in behavior, irritability, short temper, shorter attention span, loud talk. You know, you just might notice a change in behavior plus, you know, the things you mentioned. That could be a sign food allergy if it's after the after eating the offending food. Um, the physical signs are pretty common, um, but it's not necessarily as quick as our what we think about as allergies, what we call the immediate hypersensitivity reactions, you know, where someone gets a swollen lip or even um, the shortness of breath, that is a different mechanism. The food allergies, they're called delayed hypersensitivity. So some of the symptoms don't appear for a day to three days. So we can't always correlate the behavior problems to right after a meal. Uh, usually we see some of the physical signs, you know, within a few hours. But it's it's much more delayed, and, and you need to kind of understand it um, and monitor it over a couple of days. Uh, for years, people were recommending elimination diets where, and there's lots of books uh, on this, where you kind of eliminate uh, highly allergenic foods and introduce foods one at a time. And that's where you might see behavioral symptoms come on very quickly when you introduce the dairy or the wheat after the child has been off that food for a couple of weeks. 
So this is going to be a, like a detective. Uh, I mean, you know, the parents got to kind of monitor what the kid eats so they can test if they have a reaction when it's the, the uh, food is reintroduced. Because there is some detective days, work, but the, 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 the good the news symptoms. now is we do have tests. So we can look at a blood test um, to see which food someone might be allergic to. Which blood test would you recommend? Uh, these are called, you know, IgG food allergy tests, and a number of labs around the country do them. And, and they're not 100% accurate, um, so I don't want to mislead um, your guess. I, th- I think that the science and the research has not been uh, done to prove it, but clinically, those of us have been using it for 30 years, uh, they're great guides, particularly for young children. You really can see the difference um, their immunological response to dairy being very, very high, and you eliminate that food, and symptoms, psychological symptoms, behavioral symptoms get better. And how would you compare the IgG test, the Cyrix test, the ALCAT test? Any preferences among those? I've just been using the IgG as a kind of screening test um, for many years, so that's what I'm most comfortable with. I think that all those tests you mentioned have some value um, to the um, kind of assessment for food allergies. Now, I also understand that the pulse rate might go up, and there's some, I guess, a group is looking at the research of monitoring blood sugar changes and heart rate uh, changes after eating a food. So would a quick test be to see if the pulse goes up? Yeah, there was a book written a number of years ago called The Pulse Test, and absolutely... Your pulse typically might go up five, ten points after you eat, um, but oftentimes you'll notice going up uh, 20 or 30 points, and that is a, uh, a pretty uh, reliable indicator of a, f- a food allergy or food sensitivity. Well, that's quite an increase in the pulse. <laughs> Uh, do you have any recommendations generally for strengthening brain cells, which is going to be important to all the listeners? Well, I, I think that um, there are certain kind of nutrients that would be supportive for, you know, all of us, and, and those would tend to be things like magnesium, the omega-3 fatty acids, and the OPCs. So I think anyone looking at kind of preventing cognitive decline, looking at um, supporting uh, brain health, those are the three with lots of research, and I think anybody could take those. Uh, lithium, what we talked about earlier, um, you know, I recommend for everyone kind of over 40 as a kind of prevention of cognitive decline because of its kind of neuroprotective effects. And then the most important part of my work is that detective work that you described individually, there could be a whole host of nutritional, metabolic, or hormonal things that should be addressed for that individual to help their optimal brain function. Okay. Um, what about diet? What would you recommend? You know, I think that um, over the years, there's been so many diet studies for so many different things. And one thing that is the only consistent thing that I've read in 30 years, it's not what people are eating because people are, can be healthy on multiple diets. So if you just look at world cultures, it's what they're not eating. So my strongest recommendation is the elimination of, of refined sugar and junk food as um, detrimental to mental health. 
So we have very healthy vegetarians and we have very healthy meat eaters. So I don't think there's one perfectly healthy diet, um, a kind of moderate diet, but I do think there are some unhealthy diets. What about artificial sweeteners? Uh, I think the research certainly around, um, you know, eating disorders and other mental health problems, they're almost as bad, if not worse, than the sugar. And what about breakfast? Do you recommend, um, you know, high protein and a low glycemic index breakfast or low glycemic load? Well, uh, absolutely. For our ADHD kids, the higher protein, uh, lower glycemic load is going to help regulate blood sugar throughout the day. And as I said earlier, these kids, um, there is some research, and we see it all the time, that they're much more vulnerable to, to ups and downs in blood sugar. So the more consistent dietary low glycemic approach we can take, much better results with uh, treatment. And uh, the adults, adults with ADHD see this most easily because they can experience it for themselves. Um, uh, what about sleep? You mentioned that was extremely important. What if the child or ourselves are having trouble with sleep? What would you recommend? Well, important to assess any sleep disturbances. So very high rates of ADHD with sleep apnea. So we're seeing apnea now in young kids, sometimes related to weight, and sometimes not. Um, so sleep apnea should be assessed, certainly if anybody is snoring. Uh, so sleep, sleep specialists might need to be involved. Um, what we have also found is the ADHD kids tend to sleep less, so they have insomnia, they're up at night, and I'm pretty aggressive about making sure kids are sleeping adequately, and we look at, um, again, magnesium can be very helpful for sleep, melatonin has been very helpful for sleep, or sometimes um, we can use nutritional uh, supplements like glycine and theanine uh, to help our, our kids sleep, but I just would not let it go, and many parents are just kind of throw their hands up and say, my kid's up till 2 in the morning, there's nothing I can do. Uh, I, I think it's a physiological problem. Uh, sleep deprivation creates um, havoc uh, with inflammation, and uh, so treating um, de- decreased amount of sleep is an important part of our ADHD um, treatment plans. What about tryptophan? Uh, tryptophan, uh, we use regularly. Um, certainly for adolescents and, and adults, and it's been a, a great sleep aid. And um, so each tryptophan pill is 500 milligrams, and sometimes, depending on the age, one gram to three grams of tryptophan can be very helpful for sleep. Now, if a person has sleep apnea, is there any other alternative other than the CPAP machine? The, the two alternative, the two treatments that uh, seem to have made a difference for individuals would be a CPAP or a dental appliances. So the um, there are dentists now that just specialize in sleep apnea, and these dentists are able to uh, create um, appliances that kind of move the jaw forward and opens the airway. And for many individuals, it's easier than the CPAP, and for some, it's just as effective. So I just want to reiterate for the audience that sleep, good sleep, is extremely important for ADHD, mental disorders, and for all of our health, that sleep, poor sleep, 
as well as poor exercise and poor stress are all uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, dementia, etc. So our sleep is essential. And so what about exercise? What do the studies show on the effect of exercise with ADHD? Well, I think there are many studies um, across lots of uh, psychiatric illnesses, uh, depression, um, and ADHD probably has the most in terms of the relationship to um, improved um, symptoms. So we know exercise um, increases uh, chemical hormones, neurotransmitters, uh, these peptides. Probably the most important is something called BDNF, a, a peptide brain-derived neurotrophic factor that both enhances mood and the studies looked at kids and kids uh, who's, who have exercised have um, improved symptoms. So we know that's important. And if you talk to anybody with ADHD, as I've been treating thousands of kids and adults over the years, they function better after they exercise. Oftentimes they plan homework uh, after they exercise. Or they plan any sustained attention task after they exercise. So- the other... Um, you know, part of that is, is nature. Um, there's, there's research looking at ADHD kids in nature. So what I was thinking about is exercising in nature is ideal. Um, so just being in green spaces has improved attention for kids with ADHD. And there are a number of studies looking at um, what's been called vitamin N for nature. <laughs> okay. Well, could the being in the nature kind of correlate with mindfulness? Uh, absolutely. Um, mindfulness has by itself been looked at with ADHD and um, intuitively we don't think an ADHD child would benefit from meditation or mindfulness techniques, but a very good research and very kind of helpful uh, mindfulness programs have resulted in, in sustained attention improvement. I, I like to work with kids on what I call kind of walking medica- meditations or walking mindfulness. So I don't ask a child to sit or ask a parent to, to do that kind of mindfulness, but you can use mindfulness techniques as our child is either walking in nature or doing any kind of activity. It's really kind of helping the brain kind of be in the present and, and not be kind of thinking of the past or the future and we can teach these kids uh, exercises that can really kind of help them um, be mindful and over time an, improve symptoms. Can you give us an example of, you know, one uh, exercises that you might have a hyperactive attention deficit kid do? Sure. Well, there are two, two things that I... You know, I ask parents to routinely do. Um, let me start with the most important, I think, is, is listening to the child. Um, too many times we have our own expectations of what we think a child should do, how they should study. So I try to set up listening times where parents will ask their children, you know, how do you study best? Um, this comes up a lot because the, the parents say, shut the music off, close your phone, you have to be in a quiet room where a child might do best with the music on and standing up. And and so one is that listening. And the second is, you know, some of these um, what I call mindfulness um, walking exercises. So walking with your child, ideally in nature, but whatever is convenient, and then helping um, and teaching some mindfulness techniques about just being aware of their surroundings, what they're seeing, what they're feeling, how they're hearing, um, their body as well as the world around them. So 
It can be very open, what's comfortable for the parents, but keeping the kids moving most of the time is the easiest way. And what exercises would you recommend for a child? How would you get a kid moving? Uh, The uh, most successful uh, programs have really been martial arts. Um, There are obviously many athletes who love, um, you know, organized sports, and these kids are, are busy doing their sport activities. But the martial arts are really available to the younger children, to girls and boys, and and they tend to uh, enjoy it, and we see dramatic improvement in attention, and that's part of the training. Um, and it's always amazing as parents, they say their kid can't sit still, and they watch them in the martial arts class, you know, standing still for large periods of time. So uh, martial arts is one, but really any exercise program can benefit. Uh, any other particular recommendations if martial art programs are not close by? Um, well, this, the, um, walking, you know, exercises, or any kind of yoga programs. Again, we don't think of ADHD kids as participating in yoga because they can't sit still, but we've started some kids and they just kind of fell in love with it and it's their, their time to be able to focus. Now you've made recommendations how best to communicate with, uh, kids with ADHD. So can you tell us about that? The Again, the problem is just uh, over time we tend not to listen to our kids because the ADHD kid kind of sets himself up because he might be impulsive or overactive as a behavior problem that our reactions tend to be critical. And and we know that kind of harsh critical parenting makes these symptoms worse and certainly affects self-esteem. So we're looking for a communication style where parents will kind of ask and and respect and understand the illness. As we understand ADHD, parents are better able to kind of tolerate the symptoms and find different environments where the kids are going to do better, one-on-one, more structure. And one of the the quotes in the book that I'd like, that I use all the time with parents, is think of your child as as a, a handful of sand in your palm. And, and holding that sand very gently, and I have them imagine what happens if they squeeze too tightly with that sand. Well, you know, the sand goes through your fingers. So I'm just recommending that parents don't squeeze too tightly. Constant punishment for a what I call a neurobiological disorder, it does not help. And to stop criticizing as well. So it sounds like, as we're coming to a closing, that ADHD, like any other illness and the mental illnesses as well, could have so many different things that are contributing to it. So it's like a big puzzle. So in our last two minutes, are there any final words you'd like to say or give information on how to get a hold of you? Well, I think it's just really important that parents understand medications that can be used safely and effectively, but they're not the answer. And I certainly recommend for children and adolescents that parents look at nutritional, metabolic, and other kinds of lifestyle changes first. And if medicines are necessary, some of the nutritional approaches in the book um, can kind of minimize the side effect. So the book uh, that we uh, wrote is called Finally Focused. The website is finallyfocusedbook.com. We have the research studies. We have um, some courses and videos that are available. And for helping parents and adults, 
get the treatment that can help. This book is very well written, and it's a very logical pathway with a lot of explanations. It's very clear so that anybody in the audience might pick it up and uh, be able to go through this process and help the physicians go through it as well. It's an excellent book. Great. Thank you. Okay. Any other final words? Um, We have one minute left. uh, So any parting words? Well, I started mentioning it, but I just shared again that, that adults are AD with ADHD are kind of a, a, a population that's neglected and not often treated. But adults with ADHD have much higher rates of, of divorce, financial problems, even prison sentence, traffic accidents. I mean, you name it. They struggle. Okay, we are at this point, sorry, we're coming to an end. So I recommend that you all check with your health providers. Maybe you can help them with suggesting these tests and have them read Dr. Greenblatt's book. So go do your own research so you can help yourself and help others. So be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. We